G'day mate, Forty here. So I was just watching a the best scene of the Fablemans, according to Steve Saylor, where young Steven Spielberg gets to meet the, the great director, John Ford. And uh, John Ford gives him two minutes of advice, shows him two pictures. Uh, one picture of the horizon is near the top, like right now. And another picture, the horizon is at the bottom of the screen. So John Ford says, when the horizon's at the top of the screen, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the bottom of the screen, it's interesting. When the horizon is in the middle of the screen, it's boring. <laughs> so Steve Zaylor says The Fair Woman's is a, a drama about Steven Spielberg's early life that had very little drama. So, not the most compelling movie. G'day, mate. Forty here. So, I'm listening to the classic Robert Caro biography, The Power Broker, about Robert Moses, who was a New York City Parks Commissioner and influential New York City power broker from 1920s to about 1960 and in uh, in around 1934 Robert Moses decides to run for governor of New York and he has the support of the old guard right, the people with all the money even though he's, he's pretty much a uh, a progressive candidate he's, he's running for the as a Republican, and he just does everything wrong. So the book is called The Power Broker, right, because Robert Moses was so good at how he wielded power. But even people who are incredibly good at wielding power, right, they get in an unfamiliar situation, one that's maybe not conducive to their success, and they can just bollocks everything up. It's so funny. So until this point, Robert Moses had only received the glowing treatment from the news media. But now that he's running for major political office for the first time, he receives, you know, the kind of skeptical probing treatment that uh, the news media dishes out to someone who is a nominee for one of the two major parties. And he reacts really badly. Like he starts lecturing the press. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be lectured. So just the other day, someone asked me about my resolutions for the new year. So, oh yeah, I want to lose three kilograms, about 10 pounds. And the bloke said, oh, you want to know how to do that? I said, no. But he didn't care. He just went on lecturing me about how to lose weight. And I didn't want to hear it. And so people don't like to be lectured. But Robert Moses would just berate and lecture at the press. So the press had always given him really positive, laudatory coverage. But now he absolutely blows it with them. And then he goes to many of his friends who he'd worked with, who tended to be leaders of the Democratic Party. And he just assumes their support. He goes to dinner with them and uh, says, oh, I assume I can count on your support. And these are Democrats, he's running as a Republican, and they say, no, I'm a Democrat. And then he won't speak to them again for decades afterwards. Or he announces he's got the support of New York City's mayor when he doesn't. So he just misplays everything. He doesn't take any advice about how to be a politician. And the situation of being a politician is very different from being a bureaucrat or a pundit, or a businessman. Right? Different situations, different tasks, different roles require different skills. And just because you're good in business or a good power broker behind the scenes or a powerful bureaucrat doesn't mean that you're going to make a, a great politician. So he just completely misreads the situation. Someone who's just so incredibly canny about power. 
So you're looking out at uh, Boyne Island here at low tide. Incredibly good with power, but gets himself in an unfamiliar situation and he just does everything wrong. So Robert Moses obviously is Jewish, but he gets really angry whenever anyone mentions that he's Jewish. He says, no, I'm not Jewish. Right? So that kind of inauthenticity is not appealing. He would uh, start his speeches by saying, now I'm not here to represent the old God. And he'd complain about the news media is always portraying him as the representative of the moneyed interests. And that hadn't happened. There had been barely any news media coverage of this. But even the hint of impropriety, even the hint of being in someone's pocket, and, and Robert Moses would just go off and he'd make the very thing that he wanted to deny, he'd make that front and center as, as a major issue, right? It's like when people say, oh, now Joe Blow is irrelevant. Well, if Joe Blow really was irrelevant, you wouldn't need to waste your breath saying that he's irrelevant. Or Bush administration officials would say that uh, Yasir Arafat, the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, that he was irrelevant. Well, he was really irrelevant. You wouldn't need to say so. So, Robert Moses, so skilled in the exercise of power in so many areas, but just completely misread the situation. Others wouldn't wouldn't take advice. I just assumed that he knew how to do things because he'd been successful in some areas of politics as a bureaucrat and behind-the-scenes player. Just assumed that he'd know how to do it in running for major political office and it was an absolute disaster so being so sure that you know how things work when you enter a new realm is uh, not very wise right? it, it's like the under owner who doesn't really like to work very much and uh, just wants to surf the internet on work time and just tells himself oh I can get away with it well, if you can get away with it, now why have you been fired 20 times? Right? If you can get away with it, why have you been humiliated and embarrassed so many times? If you can get away with it, why do you have so many poor performance reviews? So, as a 12-step sponsor, you know, I love to hear my, my sponsees and my own excuses. and And then my sponsees or I will sit down and write about okay this is the lie that I tell myself oh I can get away with it but how's that working out right what what events what humiliations what disasters disprove my assertion that uh, I can get away with it or oh, I can just skate by here on my charm and personality and good looks all right so <laughs> how many humiliations have I suffered with that kind of attitude. Good day, mate. Forty here. For eleven years, Carl Ashanti defended the NYPD in civil rights cases. Then he was arrested for a crime he didn't commit. Written by Jake Pearson for New York Magazine. Narrated by Landon Whitson. Okay, so this guy is a police lawyer. And he has one unfortunate incident with the police where he won't take instructions. And he gets his comeuppance. It's pretty rich. This article was published in partnership with ProPublica. Please be advised, this article contains adult language. Okay, you ready for this? Adult language, guys. Carl Ashanti neared his office in the New York City Law Department's headquarters in March 2018. The police were shutting down Park Place. Ice had fallen from the buildings above, so an officer had cordoned off the area. Ashanti flashed his work ID, and the cop let him through. Right, so immediately, all right, if uh, if an area has been cordoned off, all right, uh, may not necessarily be the best thing to try to flash your ID or to you know, use what you presume is your power to you know get your way. Right? Maybe just. Uh, Follow the same rules that everybody else has to follow. Then about two 
two-thirds of the way down the block, he ran into a second officer. Turn around now. John Shapiro barked. I... Okay, so if someone has a gun, someone has power over you, someone can really hurt you, right? If someone can damage you in innumerable ways, and they tell you to turn around, the best thing to do is to turn around. But uh, Carl Ashante, he knew better. Dead now. Ashanti stiffened. The two men were about the same size. Right, so if you stiffen and you start to put out resistance against someone who has a lot of power and authority over you and the ability to hurt you, uh, you may not like what happens next. Each around six feet tall and 240 pounds. Shapiro was in his blue New York Police Department uniform. Ashanti, a city lawyer, wasn't due in court that day and had dressed casually in dark slacks, a button-down, an overcoat, and a winter hat. Oh, so if he'd been in a suit and tie, then uh, uh, the, uh, the police officer would have just let him march on by? I don't think so. The two had never met before, but there was something about Shapiro's brusque demeanor that Ashanti recognized. Right, so you can uh, take exception to people's brusque demeanor. You can get annoyed that they aren't treating you with the respect that you think you deserve. All right? But uh, that's not usually going to serve you very well. For 11 years, Ashanti had defended NYPD officers against lawsuits alleging civil rights violations in federal court. He was a senior litigator in a little-known law department unit that exclusively handles such cases, the Special Federal Litigation Division, known simply as Special Fed. As a black man who'd grown up in Jamaica, Queens, Ashanti thought he brought valuable perspective to the work. He'd seen how black people, and black men in particular, could, through no fault of their own, be targeted by prejudiced men in uniform. Uh, that, I'm sure that happens because police are human. It happens an infinitesimal amount of time. Right? Overwhelmingly, when people get targeted by men in uniform, it's because they behave badly. Right? Overwhelmingly, those parts of the community that commit the most crime are under-policed. They're not over-policed. Right? The news media and our elites and democratic politicians and Black Lives Matter, they have this agenda that you know, black life is just way over-policed. But for, for those black people you know, who are suffering at the hands of criminality in their communities... Right? They don't experience life as over-policed. Right? If anything, these communities are under-policed and are dramatically less policed than they were eight years ago, three years ago. And that's why there's dramatically more serious crime. Because if you don't nip it in the bud, if you don't nip it at the broken window stage, their bad behavior tends to escalate. Still, Ashanti took pride in his legal skills and had come to embrace the combative approach that Special Fed typically took in fighting claims of police abuse, even in the face of compelling evidence that police behavior violated the constitutional rights of the people they had sworn to protect. Okay, so police have to often react in a split-second manner, right? They don't always have the time to deliberate, to come sold with a constitutional lawyer right? generally speaking if you are coming to the attention of police in all likelihood it's because you have misbehaved you have placed yourself in the company of people who misbehave and you appear like someone who's misbehaving on Park Place Ashanti told Shapiro who was white that he was trying to get to his office Shapiro insisted he go back the way he came. Okay, so he's been told twice now he needs to turn around, go back the way he came. And arguing with a policeman usually doesn't uh, work out real well for you. Right? Arguing with anyone who has power over you, like a boss, a supervisor, right? usually isn't going to turn out well for you. Ashanti moved between two parked cars to cross the street, and Shapiro... Okay, so he hadn't been told... Oh, you can just move any way you want. All right, Shapiro, police officer, told him to turn around and walk backwards. So Ashanti argues with the police officer and then disobeys the police officer. Right, how do you think this is going to turn out for him? Hustled to cut off his path. 
repeating his order. The two okay, he's now been told three times what to do. Men faced each other in the middle of the road. Shapiro tapped Ashanti on his shoulder. Ashanti backpedaled and asked to speak to a supervisor. Shapiro took out his handcuffs. Within 90 seconds of their first encounter, the officer arrested the attorney. Okay, so police essentially have dictatorial power over you for a time, right? Just like people get all sorts of bad ideas because of rhetoric about democracy, but even in democracy, you have lots of little dictators, including police officers, bureaucrats, right? They don't have ultimate global power, but for many of your interactions, effectively, they're going to have absolute power for a period of time. And uh, going to war with a dictator is not going to work out so well. So the United States president essentially has dictatorial power when it comes to foreign policy. So the U.S. is both a democracy and it has considerable elements of dictatorship, as we saw when we lost all these constitutional rights during COVID to restrict the spread of COVID. We have to take these emergency measures. So real emergencies or putative emergencies are continually invoked by democratic leaders, meaning small d, democratic leaders, right, to provide a justification for taking away rights. This is the way it's always happened. This is the way it will always happen. We'll never have a functioning democracy that does not have considerable elements of dictatorship. And in effect, when you interact with a policeman, situations like this, the policeman has dictatorial power. Shapiro claimed in criminal filings that Ashanti resisted arrest and shoved him twice, so forcefully that Shapiro had to step back to catch his balance. The New York Post splashed the allegations in its pages, calling Ashanti a livid lawyer. It wasn't true. Okay, wasn't true, but uh, did Carl Ashanti do anything to contribute to his own troubles? Yes, he got into a needless confrontation with a police officer by not recognizing the police officer's due authority. He disobeyed the police officer multiple times, and uh, and then the police officer did lie about him, and the New York Post published something that wasn't true. But this is what happens when you instigate confrontations. Right? The more you have confrontations with people, right, the more adrenaline you're going to bring out in them. And when people have adrenaline running, when people are escalating in a confrontation, right, they're more and more likely to say things about you that are untrue. And people are increasingly incentivized to do as much damage as possible to you. Security camera footage showed no shoving during the incident. As it unfolded, nine other people freely walked up and down Park Place. Okay, so even if you get into a nasty confrontation and you have dictatorial power, even dictators don't have absolute power. Nikita Khrushchev was uh, the dictator of the Soviet Union, but after losing the Cuban Missile Crisis to John F. Kennedy... Right, he was removed as a dictator of the Soviet Union. So even dictators are not the boss in the final analysis, right? You know who is the boss of the situation? And so you may think that you've got the power, like this police officer did, but uh, security camera footage will show that you're lying, and uh, that's not really going to help you. <laughs> so yeah, you can temporarily wield tremendous power over people. But if you misuse that power, if you forget the temporary nature of that power, you're very likely to become absolutely humiliated. Because you've misread the nature of your power. It's temporary and situational. Many people with temporary and situational power, they, uh, they get drunk on it. And they don't realize that uh, when the situation changes, when the nature of the time changes, all right, that power is going away. Court records revealed it wasn't the first time Shapiro had been accused of abusing his power. By the time he detained Ashanti, the officer had already been named in three false arrest lawsuits. Okay, so there are things you can do to minimize your chances of getting sued. All right. 
And so it wouldn't surprise me if uh, police work attracts a type of person who may get a little drunk on power. Good mate, 40 here in Boyne Island, central Queensland on the coast here. Listening to an article from New York Magazine, The Police Lawyer's Trial. The police lawyer question is Carl Ashanti. Two were settled and one was dismissed. Ashanti's own unit had handled those cases. Within days of the incident, the law department gave Ashanti an ultimatum. Resign or be fired. Okay, so... When you have a job, you're there to not just perform services, but to represent people. And when you represent people in a bad light, when you get into confrontations that lead you to being shown publicly and falsely to be engaged in improper behavior, your bosses are very likely to, to fire you. So how do you minimize the chances for this? Right? By minimizing needless confrontations. Right? The more confrontations you get into, the more chances are that people will really hurt you, they will come for your job, they will fire you, they will look for your weak points, they will go after you, they will remember you, and uh, try to hurt you repeatedly, and even those who are close to you. So for the best life, the most productive life, the most happy, joyous, and free life really pays to try to get along with everyone to the greatest possible extent. After more than a decade defending the police, Ashanti was finding out what it was like on the other side of the law. On October 29th, 1984... So you really don't want to find out what it's like on the other side of the law. (laughs) just not something you want. You really don't want to be stopped by policemen. You really don't want to be arrested. You really don't want to be charged. You really want to do everything possible to stay out of that kind of situation. And one of the ways to do this is to not argue with police officers. Another way to avoid this kind of trouble is to always follow a policeman's instructions. In fact, much less likely to get into trouble if you follow the instructions of people who have power over you, right? Like I do volunteer work and I follow instructions, right? I follow directions from people who are above me, even when it comes to the type of shirt that I wear, right? If you get on a plane, your life will be a lot easier if you follow instructions. If you go to a restaurant, your life will be easier if you follow instructions. Shanti was 11 years old. Police officers in Morris Heights entered Eleanor Bumper's apartment and killed her with a shotgun. Bumper's was 66 and mentally ill. Her family had instructed her not to let strangers into her home, and when the police showed up to assist in her eviction that day, she lunged at them with a kitchen knife. Okay, so best to stay out of situations where police need to evict you. Right? Best not to have interactions like this with the police, if uh, you're mentally ill, then uh, you should be living with other people who have power over you. You probably shouldn't be living on your own. And uh, really bad idea to lunge with a knife at people who have guns, right? It doesn't shock me, it doesn't surprise me, it doesn't appall me that police officers would shoot to kill someone who lunges at them with a knife, because someone who lunges at you with a knife is a deadly threat to your life. Her death inflamed the city. In Ashanti's neighborhood... Her death inflamed the city because people are looking for excuses to lash out at reality. The police are just representing reality, right? People who were inflamed by this just wanted to get out of the dreary nature of their lives and construct some kind of fantasy hero system whereby they were fighting the man, they were fighting power, you know, against an oppressive, violent criminal police force. Really, the problem is that uh, many mentally ill people should not be living independently. They should be in asylums. The people should be educated to follow directions from police. And if you resist arrest, then you're placing your life at risk. 
And if you threaten someone's life, they're very likely to kill you, whether or not they're police officers. Dominantly black community of working class Caribbean immigrants and city employees, the shooting entered a canon of police killings that, over decades, have shaped attitudes on race and the police. Okay, these police killings didn't shape attitudes on race and police. These police killings exemplify how one particular community is incredibly dysfunctional, incredibly criminally inclined, commits astronomical rates of murder, rape, grievous bodily harm, theft, all sorts of horrible, horrible crimes. And... They don't follow police instructions. They operate with disrespect towards police and authority in general. They routinely violate social norms. They routinely commit crimes and get away with it. And they feel like, oh, I don't need to be arrested if I am not in the mood today to get arrested. Police killings of unarmed black men are significantly less than police killings of unarmed white men when you compare interaction rates oh look at those crabs Ashanti remembers that this was about the time when his mother first gave him the talk it's not like she didn't have respect for authority Ashanti says it was not that I should dislike the police it was more like there are some police officers who will abuse their power and unless you capitulate things might escalate she was like I want my son alive okay everyone can abuse power there's there's no institution that is immune from abusing power but you're not going to have a very happy productive long life if you insist on going to war with power. I know, like as a blogger, I was constantly going to war with power. And uh, I had my moments of success, but overall it didn't make for a particularly happy life. She said that more than once to me. Not long after, three black men whose car had broken down in Howard Beach were chased by a pack of white teenagers with tire irons and baseball bats. One of the men fleeing the mob was struck by a car and killed. Another was savagely beaten. For Ashanti, the takeaway was clear. Don't ever ride your bike into Howard Beach. Okay, now, is there a reason why people in Howard Beach would react this way? Did they have a negative history of violent crime suffered by outgroups? Right? Did... uh, did the narrator expect that uh, these teenage boys could operate with complete disregard to the track record of other teenage boys from their community? If you are part of a community that commits astronomical rates of crime, astronomical rates of murder, astronomical rates of rape, astronomical rates of misbehavior, theft, you are going to be burdened by that. That's the way the world works. Right? In the Anglo world, there's this notion that you know we should see everyone as individuals, but uh, most people don't have the time or energy for that. Right? The way the world works is that we are seen as representatives of a particular group, and how our group behaves, and what kind of reputation our group builds, right, is going to shape how other people interact with us. So, if these boys came from a community renowned for kindness and good works, right, they, they wouldn't. They would be much less likely to be chased by a, by a violent mob. It's the ironic thing about growing up in New York City, which is such a quote-unquote liberal city, he says. You have these incidents of not just police, but private racial violence. Police race... Yes, that's true. There is so much private racial violence, and it's overwhelmingly committed by one protected community who you cannot name against other communities. Private racial violence is overwhelmingly committed by one minority population in New York City against others. 
We're talking by rates of 5 to 1, 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 40 to 1, 80 to 1, right? It's not white people who are going around shooting people in New York City. It's not Asians who are overwhelmingly going around committing most violent crime or gun crime, right? Private racial violence is overwhelmingly committed by the group that is portrayed as the victim in this article, right? They're the perpetrators, right? The people who are supposedly the victim in this article, they're the perps. Overwhelmingly, they're the perpetrators. They're the ones committing the violent racial crime. Overwhelmingly, it's so one-sided. FBI crime statistics on rape, on interracial rape, it's overwhelmingly the protected group committing, according to FBI crime stats, about 10, 15, 20,000 rapes a year. And uh, in the opposite racial direction, there are virtually none. So yeah, private racial violence in New York City committed overwhelmingly by one protected group you're not allowed to name on social media, right? The, the group that is portrayed as the victims by the news media, by our academic and political and uh, NGO elites. They're the ones committing the overwhelming amount of private racial violence. It was real, he thought. But cops didn't have a monopoly on prejudice. It was simply everywhere. Oh, cops don't have a monopoly on prejudice. Cops are overwhelmingly free of doing the things that are ascribed to them by the news media and our elites. Cops overwhelmingly go easier on, on blacks who are suspects of crime than they do on, say, whites who are suspects in crime. In sixth grade, Ashanti did well on an exam given by Prep for Prep, a nonprofit group that sends promising students of color to elite, mostly white private schools. Why would they send them to the elite black private schools? I don't understand that. I mean, why don't they send them to the elite black private schools? I mean, I've been around Australia and America, and uh, I'm just unaware of any hospitals that have been set up by Africans who, you know, want to minister to the needs of people in the United States or Australia. Uh, Why is it that the elite schools are not black schools? Why is it that the elite institutions are not overwhelmingly composed of black people set up by Africans? Uh, The only explanation I can think of is white racism. White racism is the only reason that Africans haven't come to the United States and given us blessings of uh, setting up hospitals and setting up elite private schools, setting up elite universities. Doggone it. White racism, man. Such a bummer. He attended Buckley, the Tony All Boys Academy on the Upper East Side, where he was a few years ahead of Donald Trump Jr., then high school at St. Paul's, the exclusive New Hampshire boarding school. Okay, so he is given a scholarship for an elite education, and uh, I'm going to suspect here a large part of the reason he got this scholarship is affirmative action. Right? You really think he had to meet the same scholarly requirements of other kids? You think he would have gotten his scholarship if he wasn't part of some protected racial group? One Friday during sophomore year, it was his turn to choose a film for movie night. Students normally picked comedies, but Ashanti went with Colors, the 1988 drama about Los Angeles cops patrolling gangland beats. So, I've looked at Nielsen's statistics, and overwhelmingly, white Americans and black Americans watch very different TV shows. Black Americans watch a lot of NBA games, right, more than than white Americans. So... Different people have uh, have different tastes in culture, in TV. So the type of uh, TV shows and movies that white people want to watch, generally speaking, black people aren't as interested in uh, Bryce Head Revisited and the like. And the type of TV shows and movies that uh, black people watch, white people aren't interested in. Uh, Is that some kind of venal racism? 
the older boys rolled his eyes about the selection and shit, Ashanti says. And then maybe like one or two other people joined in. A what the fuck is this kind of thing? Just like a complete rejection of anything that had to do with the ghetto, with black and Latino culture. Yeah, so why would, you know, elite whites, you know, teenagers, uh, not be particularly interested in thug life, in uh, ghetto life, in uh, gang life, in lower class life, in the life of people completely different from them? That's the way of the world. We prefer to watch movies and TV shows and to read novels that are about people similar to ourselves. Right? Generally speaking, successful people, elite people, productive people that don't like to watch entertainment about criminals and losers and people in the underclass. With him. I just remember looking at them like, you fucking privileged assholes. Oh, they're... <laughs> they got different tastes from you, and so therefore they're a-holes. Right? Boy, you are a joy. Right? People are not allowed to have different tastes from you without getting berated. And this guy's got a temper. This guy's got a hair-trigger temper. Like, he's given so much privilege. Right? He's had so many things handed to him. Right? He has been the recipient of so much generosity and kindness. And he, the more he's given, the more he's a tinder keg, and just waiting to explode. Everything has to be your way all the fucking time. On several occasions, upper... So they, just because they didn't affirm his choice of movie, they didn't celebrate uh, his choice, then... Uh, he had this angry, nasty, aggressive reaction. Right? He's been given so much. Why is he so angry? Classman barged into his room in the middle of the night and pelted him with water balloons. And he didn't do nothing. Right? This is the thing, right? He didn't do nothing. Right? They just barged into his room and pelted him with water balloons for no reason. Right? This uh, aggressive, angry unsociable, difficult person just for no reason, right? They, they pelt him with water balloons. Oh my God, how awful. Uh, I got some familiarity with teenagers and uh, being pelted by, by water balloons is uh, not exactly some major trauma or some you know, really known event, right? This is how boys react with boys, right? And they bully you you get out of line if you're a pain if you don't fit in and if you make life difficult for other people yeah they're gonna bully you he thought they were sending a message here's this motherfucker who won't fall in line yes they were sending a message and guess what they would have sent the same message to a white kid who also wouldn't fall in line at 23 he legally changed his last name to Ashanti shedding the birth name Francis that his enslaved African ancestors had been branded with. Okay, so if you change your name, right, people are going to look upon you as petulant, fraudulent, inauthentic. If you change your name from so something socially acceptable to something socially fringe, right, uh, it's not going to endear you to most people. I'm sure one of their goals was for one of their descendants to one day be free of that name, he says. Uh, really? Do you think this is really a, a major concern of your ancestors? That they be free of a name that uh, makes assimilation a lot easier, that makes you know life in the United States a lot easier, but uh, they, they really wanted you to have a more difficult life. Really? Is that what you think? I know that's what it would be for me. Yeah, so you're reading back into history people who worked and sacrificed so that you could have all these opportunities and you think they want you to go backwards have life become more difficult. Shanti is impeccably credentialed. G'day mate, looking at this article here from New York Magazine The Police Lawyer's Trial. 
Now, Carl Ashante, right? This uh, black attorney in New York City who was many years an attorney for New York City policemen accused of uh, civil rights violations. And uh, he's changed his last name from Francis to Ashanti, so he can be more African. He went on to Stanford, where he was president of his all-black fraternity. And then George... So do you think he would have gotten into Stanford without affirmative action? At the odds of 90%, no. ...town law. But when he returned to New York and entered the workforce, his trajectory slackened. At a succession of -of run-of-the-mill firms, Ashanti took cases involving businesses suing businesses... So maybe he was no longer the recipient of affirmative action. Right? Law is ruthlessly meritocratic. Right? You have to produce. You have to be conscientious. You have to work hard. You have to get along with people. And uh, sounds like this guy has a hair-trigger temper. It's not particularly sociable or pleasant to be around. And uh, sounds like his uh, career stalled out. Only if you think that everything that went before that, or the opportunities he went before that, were a reflection of his innate qualities, rather than a reflection of a skewed affirmative action system. So once the playing field is no longer tilted in his favor, once he's no longer getting the benefits of affirmative action, then then you know he's amazed that how difficult the world is when he has to succeed on his own merits. No injury and insurance. The work could be challenging, but it didn't satisfy his civic or lawyerly ambitions. A landlord and tenant arguing the terms of a 20-year lease? Well, guess what? Most people's jobs, you know, don't satisfy their grander ambitions. So, that's the nature of reality. This guy seems to have a problem with reality. Appearances in state courts before overworked judges? Uninspiring. Yeah, well, for most people, their work is uh, boring and uninspiring. That's uh, usually what men have to do. They want to support a wife and kids. They have to do boring and uninspiring work. One morning, on his way to the office, Ashanti says an officer pulled him over for erratic driving and falsely cited him for having lapsed insurance. And uh, he did absolutely nothing, right? There's absolutely no truth to erratic driving, because it wouldn't surprise me if someone's driving reflected their erratic and difficult personality. He was held for 12 hours. Another time while applying to a new... And if he was unjustly charged and held, how could that likely have anything to do with the driving records of other people in his community so that uh, cops have been conditioned that uh, certain groups tend to violate the law more often than other groups and you need to treat differently. Firm, his interview seemed to be going well until he met an elderly white partner. Ashanti later testified that the man said something more malicious than, you're articulate for a Negro. Oh, okay. So someone who perhaps uh, has not met a lot of, you know, articulate, you know, black attorneys, all right, uh, simply notices a pattern, all right? There aren't a ton of black attorneys. Right, a ton of black nuclear physicists. Right, they're not a ton of white players in the NBA. Right, we all face situations where we are minorities. Right, Jews dominate in some professions, but uh, in other professions, not so much. We all face situations where we're minorities. Do we handle it with grace, or do we handle it with anger and a chip on our shoulder, and resentment and rage against the system? Rage against the machine. The firm settled an equal employment opportunity commission complaint. Ashanti said he received an apology that implied the partner was like the grandpa you don't want to bring out to the party. Oh, so this innocuous remark, he files an EEOC complaint. Right, this guy is antisocial. This guy is dangerous. This guy is liable to go off at any time. 
This guy is just looking to pick a fight, just looking for reasons for rage and resentment. Right? How is that strategy going to work out in the long term? I suspect that strategy does not, generally speaking, endear you to people and does not lead to meaningful connections with people and that other people are going to shy away from someone who is as reactive as this bloke, Carlos Shante. Nine years passed in the lower tiers of corporate law. Ashanti wanted autonomy, and he wanted to conduct trials, maybe even change lanes to civil rights law. Ah, he wanted to be the big guy. He wanted to be the big man. He wanted to be the hero. Right? He wanted to run things. He had ambitions. He probably had an exaggerated sense of his own abilities and his own importance, because so much had been given to him on a silver platter due to affirmative action. Hired by Thurgood Marshall, but he didn't have a civil rights background, and the longer he spent doing corporate law, the less possible switching tracks felt. He started talking with the recruiter, and when an opportunity arose at Special Fed, Ashanti listened with great interest. The cases would be in the federal courts, where the smartest jurists operate, and he'd be handling them soup to nuts, appearing before judges and juries, and the subject matter was appealingly complex. The main statute governing special feds... Oh, the subject matter is appealingly complex, so personal injury and uh, tenant-landlord disputes, that's not complex. Right? Business law, corporate law, that's not complex. Right? He was already practicing law that was complex so it's not the complexity that's uh, really getting him excited here there's tons of complexity in the law that he was already practicing all right this is delusion it's work section 1983 traces its roots to a reconstruction era bill known as the ku klux klan act that lets individuals sue local government officials for violations of their civil rights Right, so are we really better off for multiplying the opportunities that uh, people have to sue local government officials for violations of their civil rights? Is this really good for our society to have this focus on civil rights? Like, are we better off since the 1960s for all this civil rights legislation with reduced freedom of association with in an increasingly litigious world where you know, people have to take more and more steps to reduce their chances of uh, being sued. Has this really uh, been, been some kind of boon for America? It's an extremely technical platform to litigate with a century and a half of accumulated case law. Oh, so corporate law, personal injury law, probate law... That doesn't go back a century and a half. That is not uh, complicated. Right? There aren't you know, a whole lot of rules and regulations in other forms of law. This is delusional. That's the heart of our legal system. The relationship between government and individuals. Really? Really? Is that, is that the heart? I mean, why is that somehow more the heart than the relationship between individuals and individuals or the relationship between individuals and corporations? Why? Auntie says. He would have preferred to do civil rights work on behalf of plaintiffs, but the firms that handled such cases weren't offering him a job. Plus, for a native New Yorker, joining the law department had a special attraction. Representing the city of New York did fill me with a sense of pride, he says. The idea that he'd be arguing the side of the police just wasn't much of a factor in his decision to join the division, he says. I didn't feel any kind of way about representing police officers and correctional officers because I always knew, I always knew, it was all about the work and the cases, he says. It's always a case-by-case -case situation. Ah, it doesn't sound like it's really all about the work. It's, it sounds like it's primarily about Carl Ashante. It sounds like it's primarily about him, his desire for self-assertion, his desire for some kind of heroic role. You know, his need to be a big shot, you know, his desire to try to use his race to get as much status and prestige as possible. That's just what I'm picking up. 
Maybe I'm missing something here. Special Fed was created in 1998 by the Giuliani administration to deal with the surge in lawsuits against police officers, jail guards, and prosecutors. Its dozens of attorneys investigate citizens' allegations of beatings, false arrests, and other civil rights abuses, and decide whether to mount a defense or settle. Generally, they fight. Many Why do they generally fight? Okay, because there are so many claims, right? If people didn't abuse the system, then the system wouldn't have to respond by playing hardball, right? So it's not like, oh, the city just decides to be nasty. No, the city is reacting to a situation, and the situation is that civil rights legislation has greatly multiplied claims against the city. And so the city is forced to respond by playing hardball. Right? People don't just necessarily you know, treat you in a really harsh way and you haven't done anything. People will treat you in a harsh way because that makes sense to them. Like everything that people do makes sense to them. And so you can usually find rational explanations why people act the way they do. Fed veterans say the unit prizes winning at all costs, even when there is merit to a plaintiff's case. Oh, as opposed to other aspects of life? Uh, generally speaking, in zero-sum complex uh, American society, individualist society, is going to reward winning over all other considerations. Now, in a corporate society, that's not necessarily going to be true. But we have an individualist, litigious society. And so it's not just this one branch of uh, government attorneys that uh, prizes winning, right? This is pretty much how America works. Victory can still be had in making the process as difficult as possible for citizens. Getting suits thrown out, abandoned, or negotiated down to the smallest possible payout. So... Individuals, businesses, governments, cities, state governments, federal governments, they're not yearning to give away their money just because you make a claim, right? People aren't yearning to just give you money, right? You have to earn your money, even in litigation and claims, right? That's uh, the nature of reality. If uh, it was... It was incredibly easy to make a claim and get paid off, then uh, more and more people would do it and uh, individuals, businesses and cities would uh, go broke. The lawyers tend to see themselves as guardians of the public fisc, pitted against those who would drain the coffers. Criminals looking for a payday, greedy lawyers, bleeding heart juries. They litigate aggressively, sometimes drawing rebukes from judges for violating court rules. So who is the most likely to litigate aggressively? Uh, plaintiff attorneys, where their payout will depend upon what happens in the case, or defense attorneys who are on salary. Overwhelmingly, it is plaintiff's attorneys who are the most aggressive, who are the most innovative, who push boundaries and break the rules more, right? It's overwhelmingly on plaintiff's side because their payout depends upon winning, right? They're usually taking these cases on contingency, right? The defense attorneys, they get paid by racking up as many hours of billing as possible. But they're on salary, so it doesn't really matter. They're not working on one case, they're working on another. So given the way incentives, financial incentives are laid out, you know, plaintiff's attorneys who are working on contingency are much more likely to push boundaries and break laws to try to win because that's where the incentives are. Blowing deadlines and pressing the boundaries of professional conduct. Earlier this year, a judge dressed down a senior special fed lawyer for failing to obey court orders. If I order something and you can't do it, you can't just blow it off, the judge said. One attorneys who routinely disobey court orders not going to be long for the legal profession. Right? That's a very dangerous thing to do for your career. So 
it's not like defense attorneys just routinely violate court orders or even plaintiff's attorneys are not routinely violating court orders. There's no longevity in, in a legal career where you disobey court orders, right? This is very much the exception for attorneys because they're going to get severely slapped down if they do it repeatedly. Plaintiff's attorney told the New York Daily News they get away with things that no other litigant would ever get away with. A spokesman for the law department. Okay, I'm highly suspicious of that. Generally speaking, plaintiff's attorneys are much more aggressive, much more likely to push boundaries, much more likely to violate protocols and rules because they get the payout based on a contingency. They only get paid if they win. It says, we take our ethical responsibilities very seriously and have zero tolerance for misconduct that undermines our mission. Sometimes even a victory at trial isn't enough for special fed. In 2020, after defeating a Bronx man in an excessive force case, the division sought sanctions against him and his legal team for bringing the suit in the first place. Okay, so this is malicious prosecution. If uh, there was no legal standing for bringing your lawsuit, and if that was known to both the, the plaintiff and plaintiff's attorneys at the time, or should have reasonably been known, then yeah, you're wide open for malicious prosecution. Without the ability to make cases for malicious prosecution, litigation will skyrocket. Right? You don't want people being able to bring cases with zero foundation. You don't want to encourage people to just bring lawsuits maliciously, and the best way to discourage that is by suing people are seeking sanctions against those who abuse the process. A federal judge wrote scathingly that the effort to penalize the plaintiff was wildly inappropriate because the man had had a reasonable case. More troubling, the judge wrote, was the chilling message that the episode sent to the law firms that do pro bono work for low-income people with facially valid claims against powerful defendants. Ashanti believed he could be a more nuanced operator at... Oh man, so those poor, you know, pro bono attorneys or plaintiff's attorneys, they're just going to get discouraged by the prospect of uh, sanctions. Judges are only going to impose sanctions, generally speaking, if attorneys have taken a case that has no valid legal basis. If they, if they, the attorneys and the plaintiffs have engaged in malicious prosecution of their case, right, then they leave themselves wide open for sanctions. If they don't follow the law, if they don't follow the dictates of the court, then they become wide open for sanctions. Special Fed. Shortly before he started, in November 2006, plainclothes officers shot 50 bullets at a car driven by a black 23-year-old named Sean Bell in the early hours of his wedding day. Oh, so if the guy had behaved identically but had been white, uh, police wouldn't shot at him? He was just uh, a law-abiding citizen. Wait, what was he doing driving around in the early hours of the morning? It was the city's most incendiary police killing in years, and Ashanti felt it personally. Bell was from his neighborhood. Sean Bell was me, he says. He decided that at his new job... Wait, what was Sean Bell doing that brought him to the attention of the police? Right, where's the context here? Right, this New York Magazine article just wants to whip up hatred and loathing for police wants to discourage police from doing their jobs, is essentially on the side of criminals as against the forces of law and order. The Bell case would serve as his moral barometer. The family would inevitably file a civil suit against the police. Would special feds settle it judiciously? Or would the unit reflexively fight to minimize the payout? That was the biggest question to me. Are we going to defend the indefensible? Wait... How do we know that was indefensible? We didn't get any context on the shooting. Ashanti says. He showed up to his first day of work in March 2007. The third floor of the New York City Law Department was like a relic of the drab municipal offices of the 1970s, with paralegals and claims specialists sitting in cubicles in the middle of the floor and attorneys occupying small, windowless offices. Conference rooms had removable walls so they could double in size when teams of litigators fielded especially big cases. Armed NYPD officers, liaisons between special fed and its police clients, walked the halls. Ooh, scary. Armed police officers walked the halls. How frightening is that? 
40 lawsuits a year, and he found that few fit his Sean Bell binary. Most presented as murky, with imperfect evidence and plaintiffs who might have been breaking the law. Well, fancy that. So his job just wasn't good versus evil. Instead, it was complex. It was complicated. It was many shades of gray. Who would have thought that? I thought you'd just go to a job like that and automatically be the forces of good versus evil. <laughs>